check it out. Hello, I'm Alex Sloan. These days describing myself perhaps to be challenged as Canberra's happiest retiree. I'm about to talk to the fabulous Heidi Yates, who is the current Commissioner for Victims of Crime as part of the Human Rights Commission. We're having this conversation with the wider aim of letting our community, including LGBTIQ people, know how to access this service. Check it out. LGBTIQ health, lifestyle and community news. Check it out. Is brought to you by the AIDS Action Council. From Canberra. For everyone. Well, I'm lucky enough to be having a chat to Heidi Yates, who is the current Commissioner for Victims of Crime as part of the Human Rights Commission. We're having this conversation with the wider aim of letting our community, including LGBTIQ people, know how to access this service. Heidi Yates, it's always great to talk to you. Lovely to be speaking with you again, Alex. Now, look, just that bit about you the marvellous Heidi Yates. <laughs> you grew up in Canberra. You're Canberra born and bred, aren't you? Indeed. Yeah. Yep. Well, tell us about your family and the influences and why we have you sitting here. You know, as a little kid, how did you spend your time? I spent a lot of time reading books. I learned to swim at Dixon Pool, um, went to Kayleen Primary, was part of a big family. And in that family, I guess we always spent a lot of time talking about issues, about different perspectives on the world, about asking questions about why things were the way they were, which didn't always go down well in other contexts in my life, but it was a safe place in family to talk about things like that. So it was that great big sort of conversation around the table that was a regular thing, was it, in your household? Yeah, yeah. family dinner time, I guess, was a constant and whilst my, both of my parents had religious backgrounds, there was lots of discussions about social justice, about responsibilities, living in a place like Australia to recognise the privilege that we had, about understanding diversity and the need for that to, across our community. And I guess I played a lot of piano, I did, you know, read a lot of books. Canberra's a beautiful place to grow up. Uh, that doesn't surprise me that your parents had religious backgrounds because you're kind of looking at big, wider philosophy there, aren't you? And if that's what's coming through the kids, that's a fantastic thing. Yeah, I think it's great to have grown up in a family where there was no right answer. We didn't sort of need to fall in line. Um, we were encouraged to question things and to challenge, I guess, things that we saw or didn't understand, which broadens your brain. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so then why did you choose to study law? I personally tossed up between social work and law and decided to, to go down the law path without any real intention of ever practising as a lawyer. But I ended up going into practice um, after a short student in the Federal Public Service in a grad program where it was quite clear um, it wasn't my game. <laughs> what did you think you'd be by making that choice between social work and law? What did you think, what was the end goal? I wanted to run an ice cream truck for a really long time, but then thinking about social work versus law, I guess it was wanting to be in a space where you could share your professional skills um, with a broad range of people across the community and perhaps have access to information that might assist them to either... I guess, rectify challenges or have information that would help them to make uh, good decisions in their lives and to work alongside people in a diverse range of contexts. Mm. So really, you were doing social work, you just were doing the legal side of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I did a short stint in legal aid for a couple of years.
was working yeah. in the domestic violence unit there and managing their um, family dispute resolution program. And then I discovered the world of community legal centres. And I remember going to the community legal centre conference in Canberra um, in the mid 2000s, and I thought, oh, these are my people. You know, they are they are fierce advocates for social justice for clients in a broad range of difficult circumstances. Um, they were doing incredible work on a shoestring. We're all a bit strangely dressed and all very outspoken. <laughs> and after that, I spent eight years um, working in the community legal sector here in the ACT, which was an incredible experience. I'll just back up for a minute. Ice cream truck? Yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited about Messina coming to Canberra, Alex. <laughs> uh, well, as long as we keep supporting the Canberra-based. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Frugi are amazing. And I would say we absolutely need to share our attentions. <laughs> <laughs> That moment when you said you walked in and you went, these are my people, I just want to explore that a little bit more because those people are working in some of the hardest areas of life, aren't they? They are, and they're doing it at the expense of much more stable work, better paid work, professional, uh, other professional options that await them. So the community legal sector is full of a really diverse crowd, many of whom sort of swing in and out of that work over time. But fundamentally, people work in community legal centres because they want to work alongside people who need assistance and support in lots of different ways and they do that in really flexible community informed ways they're not strung by the bureaucracy of bigger government organisations they take the funding they can get they apply that at the front line they build the uh, working relationships with pro bono and other contributors who make that resource pop bigger so they can share it out in more creative ways but it is an incredible sector because of what it achieves on a shoestring mm. We have that overused word of heroes in our community and it usually gets applied to sporting people but you know we know that the words are cliche but these are really fantastic people in our community aren't they? Look they really are and I think about Genevieve Bolton who heads up Canberra Community Law here, Carol Bender headed up the Women's Legal Centre for a really long time. These people who have made significant um, impacts on my life in terms of I guess working in a way that I see as creating some of the biggest impacts for the people who need the assistance most. Tell us about some of those impacts. I think watching um, Carol Bender work at the Women's Legal Centre was incredible and Rosemary Budavari before her. So people who have incredible humility, who approach their work with a genuine openness to not having all the answers, who engage with vulnerable clients and say, what is it that you need and how can we get that for you? So their first uh, answer is always, how can we make that work rather than our system doesn't quite account for that or computer says no. So that really client-centred focus and then the creativity that comes with trying to respond to diverse client needs in a limited resource environment. So all of the hundreds of volunteers that both of those people got into a centre like the Women's Legal Centre, mm. um, applying for grants left, right and centre, trying to get corporate supporters on board, doing whatever they could to get more solicitor or social work hours with clients on the front line. Heidi Yates, is there any... And I don't want you to obviously identify anyone, but are there any stories that are kind of standouts for what really drives you and keeps you going? I feel very privileged to have, I guess, shared in so many people's journeys or parts of journeys over the years. And um, 
In particular, I think of some of the women I've worked with who've experienced sexual assault and, and childhood sexual abuse. And I remember meeting with two sisters on one occasion who came in um, dressed in their business attire. They'd come in, come in from work. And over the couple of hours I spent with them, they were disclosing the most horrendous history of their family. And you could just see them being able to recount incident after incident. And at the end of that two hours, you know, they thanked me for my time. Um, and we'd, we'd made a plan about going forward around a Victims of Crime Financial Assistance Scheme application. And then off they went back into their lives as parents and um, employees and community members and PNC members. And it was just a reminder to me that people carry extraordinary trauma. At some point in time in their life, they might be at a place where they want to talk about that and seek help or seek legal advice. But we can't possibly understand the weight that so many Canberrans carry. And, and I guess in terms of today's conversation, the particular discrimination and violence and hardship that some members of the LGBTIQ plus mm. communities carry. And yet when you meet them in a you know, place of work or in a social setting or otherwise, you would never know what that burden is. Can we talk about some of those issues of discrimination that um, are really intractable at the moment and you'd really like to see overcome? Oh, where to start, Alex? <laughs> I think we're fortunate in the ACT to be uh, in a jurisdiction where at least government has been behind significant uh, law reform to try and better recognise people for who they are before the law, particularly uh, transgender, gender diverse and intersex community members. So um, I've had the pleasure, I guess, of being involved with lots of other Canberrans in um, advocating for significant change in lots of areas across discrimination law, across the way that the Birth, Deaths and Marriages Act works and recognises people across family violence legislation, looking at our parenting and adoption legislation. So lots of those systems now, I guess, better recognise a diversity of lived experience. But we still see that, for example, transgender and gender diverse Canberrans are experiencing physical violence and psychological violence and violence in public spaces at incredibly high rates compared to other Canberrans. So what is it that we can do from the front end in terms of education about people being who they are and that we have at the bottom line an obligation to treat one another in our community with respect um, through the police responses through to other support services that have got nothing to do with police or the justice response but um, allow people to increase their safety and to recover from traumatic incidents. Is that, is that rate of violence getting worse? Even though we've had sort of high profile um, transgender people in the public eye, there's a there's a deeper understanding. Do you, What's happening with the violence rate? I think um, underreporting is um, so significant that we can't possibly have a true sense or the data doesn't tell us a true sense of what's going on. From, I guess, my contact with community, it's clear that the vast majority of people never disclose. They certainly don't disclose to um, a formal authority. And what has been welcome in the ACT is a greater spotlight on personal violence, violence in relationships in the context of, you know, Rosie Batty's work and others' work um, highlighting family violence-related issues. And in the ACT, I guess we've been having quite a broad conversation about whilst we do have to recognise it as gendered violence... Um, because the vast majority of people who experience family violence are women and children. The, the vast majority of people who perpetrate that are men. We know that from all the social research. Regardless of that, we know that people of all genders use violence and people of all genders experience violence. And it's incredibly important in the LGBTIQ communities that people know that they can seek help and to recognise violence for what it is. Check it out. 
When um, Rosie Betty was named as Australian of the Year and um, I was still working for the public broadcaster, I remember a couple of people going, oh, it's tokenism, it won't make any difference, nothing will change. Mm-hmm. What's your response to that now a few years down the track and the incredible advocacy that Rosie did in that space when she was still basically in grieving and in shock about the death of her son? Yeah, I don't think any of us can possibly imagine how she managed to pick herself up and, I guess, take such a national stand, which led to significant government investment in frontline services, in law reform, in public education campaigns. Uh, And here in the ACT, we've certainly seen significant investment um, by government in the issues. I know colleagues who've been in the sector for decades have often felt like they were talking to a brick wall, but all of a sudden, government is listening um, to issues around safety, looking at the fact that we need more than just a legal and criminal justice response around safety, and looking at particularly how family violence can look, for example, um, in LGBTI communities where threats around being outed or about um, making you socially isolated where you may already be quite isolated. Um, people taking other people's meds or um, threatening to out them at work or to family, Um, that kind of psychological relationship violence Mm. is really serious and not often recognised. Was part of that, if if there is a great recognition in the community, was part of Rosie's response the very day after that Luke had been so terribly murdered that she actually uh, asked us for understanding in terms mm. of what had happened rather than anger and retribution. Was it was it a kind of a flip in all of our brains about we've just not been dealing with this in the correct way, we need to look at it differently? I think she had a big impact on lots of people and the fact that she was able to talk so soon after the incident really got people's attention and so often I think advocates in the feminist movements over many decades have kind of been shoved aside as radical feminists or you're just from the women's sector or you're still banging on about that but it was hard to shut Rosie down. She was speaking, she just lost her son and she was somehow able to say we need to change the systems um, in addition to dealing with her own personal grief and I think particularly to the decision makers, the politicians, somehow that message got through in new ways. Heidi, you advocated for landmark human rights legislation that removed the requirement for persons to undergo intrusive surgery in order to change their legal sex. Why did you push so hard for this? Firstly, I'd recognise that there have been decades of activism by incredible community members here in the ACT. My engagement um, with that advocacy, I guess, started around 2004, off the back of a commitment um, by the ACT government in 2002 to remove all forms of legislative discrimination against LGBTI people. So um, Judy Harrison and Liz Keogh and others formed the Good Process Lobby Group, which was about trying to hold government to account for undertaking a good process of community consultation about removal of that discrimination and there was an audit of all ACT legislation for discrimination and then there was a lot of focus over the next couple of years on issues that primarily affected the gay and lesbian communities. So we saw um, work in relation to adoption, parentage act and then a lot around relationship recognition. So the overturn of the Civil Unions Act, the Civil uh, Partnerships Act, then the new Civil Unions Act Uh, and during that time I guess I had a lot to learn about the particular issues facing the transgender and intersex and gender diverse communities Um, and Peter Hindle was incredibly good to me as one of the experts in good process in in walking me through what those issues were. So I guess I started to get a sense of just how 
detrimental the existing laws were, um, from unnecessary surgery on intersex infants right through to the fact that people were being required to undertake um, unnecessary, invasive, expensive uh, surgery before they could be recognised as who they were before the law. So I worked alongside many others um, uh, on, I guess, a decade-long campaign where we used lots of different tactics to try and raise this issue with government. So every time they asked us about marriage and civil unions, we'd put in a submission about um, identity recognition and, and other issues affecting the trans and intersex communities. Um, we did some test cases, some complaints through the Human Rights Commission. We tried endlessly to kind of get in to see the attorney and, and raise the issues. And it wasn't sort of until, I guess, the early 2010s that we finally started getting some traction. One of the things we managed was to lobby the attorney to refer these issues to the ACT Law Reform Advisory Council. And I was fortunate to have just been appointed a member of that council. Um, they then did some great community-based consultation, which resulted in the Beyond the Binary report that had a number of really clear recommendations for legislative change. Um, we then put sort of back on the advocacy hat and lobbied for implementation of that report, which resulted in some legislation that was tabled in 2013. At the beginning of 2013, the ACT government also formed the very first ACT LGBTIQ ministerial advice. Council, and I had the privilege of being appointed as the inaugural chair on that council. Peter Hindle was the deputy chair, and there was an incredible group of members. The great thing was all of a sudden, Alex, we were inside the tent. So having spent a decade knocking on drawers, trying to be heard, you know, having ministers cancel meetings, all of a sudden we had ministers coming to us saying, we'd like your advice and feedback from the community about how to draft this law. We're going we're to do it. How should we do it? So the team, the council team, um, were able to provide some very detailed input to try and ensure that the legislation in its final form was as good as it could be. So in 2013, um, a bill was tabled. It wasn't clear at that time that there was going to be support across all parties, but after some significant work and some long conversations, in fact, the um, bill passed in 2014 with cross-party support. <laughs> I don't know if you got to dance in the street. We did. <laughs> and, and I suppose that just is a little taste of how long change can take, but you've just got to keep pushing for it. You just you can't give in. And is that you know, really your story. Well, my story is just a very small piece of the puzzle oh, on, no, you know, no, on the shoulders of lots modest, and lots but, of people. But, but it must get, you must have times of oh, frustration and impatience and even anger. Yeah. You'd have those moments where you'd walk out of the attorney's office and think, all right, let's just go and have a beer and I'll talk about it for a couple of hours. And I'd say, you know, Peter Hindle and I were often in those meetings together and we'd say, oh, I'll call you next week and we'll, we'll make a new plan. Or we'd go back to the lobby group and say, oh, all right, we're just going to leave it for a couple of weeks and then we'll come up with a new plan. So in a place like the ACT, though, at least my experience is you have much more ready access to the people who have the power to change things than you do in bigger jurisdictions. And at various times, the ACT government has been prepared to pass landmark legislation legislation like the Human Rights Act, but the 2014 changes were about, as you mentioned, removing that surgical requirement to move between um, different boxes around having your legal sex recognised, but also creating a third option for people who don't identify in the binary boxes of male or female. There's still some really important work to be done around that. So two things I would flag are the naming of that third box. So at the moment, there's quite an awkward um, naming of that box as intersex slash indeterminate slash unspecified. 
that was a particular political decision because it was a phrase used by the Commonwealth, but we need to come back to that to make sure it better reflects words that are recognised in community. The other thing that we're currently working on with government um, relates to the number of young people who want to change their legal sex and their legal name, uh, who are under 18 and don't have the support of both parents to do those things. We recognise that um, young trans and gender diverse and intersex uh, young people can face particular challenges, have poor mental health where they aren't supported by their families and have to seek, seek that support from elsewhere. Fundamentally, a lot of young people are very clear about who they are and how they want to be recognised. And I say that if they have the decision-making ability to understand what it means to change their name and sex, they should have an independent right to apply to do that. But at the moment, they have to wait till they're 18. They do. Mm. And what we saw um, in terms of the statistics after the 2014 laws went through was that almost half of the people who changed their legal sex did so at 18, which suggests they were waiting until they could do so without needing parental support. So there needs to be a pathway here in the ACT where if a young person doesn't have support of any of their parents or perhaps has a really supportive dad but mum's not on board or other way around, that there's a pathway for them to change um, their legal sex and their name. You made a comment before about the ACT. I mean, we're often laughed at, oh, you're just a sort of little tiny council, it's a joke. Um, but, you know, you, you made a great point there that you have access to those decision makers, those lawmakers. Um, so you think the system is quite good here? I think it is. I think that as a small jurisdiction, uh, the ACT government uh, is held accountable by community. They really value from my um, experience, I guess, over the past decade, hearing from grassroots organisations, organisations like the AIDS Action Council who are um, in touch with a broader range of, of people across the community. Um, they want to hear from you. They want to hear what changes need to be made. And I do think it's possible for us to be groundbreaking in the way that uh, the law operates and to try new things which other people can then point at and say look sky hasn't fallen in <laughs> and and let's um, build on that experience and, and move forward so it's that challenge of a federal system right mm. um, the challenge of having you know birth certificates regulated in every state and territory in different ways but also the benefit of being able to create change in a small jurisdiction like the ACT and for that to be an example of what works or doesn't work might I say we don't always get it right um, and how that change might happen over a graduated period of time to the point where the federal government just can't ignore it <laughs> um, and we look towards consistent federal law or consistent law across states and territories. In, in, in 2017, the, the work the, on the human rights legislation um, was recognised by Trailblazing Women and the Law and you're also a finalist in the 2011 Young Australian of the Year Awards. What does that kind of recognition mean for you? You're a very modest person, Heidi, but in the end, though, it is recognition of the kind of work that you're doing. So... Do you take that? Is it, is it nice to see that kind of work recognised? I guess what I'd say is none of this stuff is about some, a particular person. So it's I find it quite difficult when you're given a personal accolade, which is really a reflection of many decades of work by many people. And it just happened to be, for example, that my contribution was at a particular point in time where government were ready to change. So I guess I see those opportunities as ones to speak more broadly about the kinds of issues that um, I've worked on and worked alongside others with. Um, for example, you know, people will say, oh, 
oh, you know, I saw your name on X and you say, yeah, we're doing some work around these issues in community. Can I talk to you a bit about that? So it is a lovely opportunity to speak about issues that someone might not be familiar with, but um, is more open to under the guise of one of those kind of awards. Because you, you work in, in, at the front line and you've chosen to work at this sort of front line in one of the toughest areas of law. Um, it's no wonder that in your downtime, um, it's the love of your immediate family and baking bread, not ice cream, but bread. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Why bread? <laughs> really good question, Alex. So um, I was born and bred in Canberra and then finally after, I had a few years overseas and things, but um, we moved out to Gundaroo, New South Wales on a whim about five years ago. Um, prior to that, um, we'd had uh, the Gods Cafes with our business partners at the ANU and some incredible uh, organic farmers out at All Sun Farm just outside of Gundaroo who supplied all of our fruit and veg. So we used to go out and visit them a lot and then it sort of occurred to us that actually some of the best times were around their fire and with their dog on our lap eating whatever they'd pulled out of the garden and that it would be nice to live in a way that was closer to being outside, growing our own stuff. So we moved out there on a bit of a whim and shortly thereafter um, some very generous friends had a hand-built uh, wood-fired bread oven that they no longer required. So uh, on Christmas Eve we hired a 10-ton crane and with the help of our neighbour, the, uh, the incredible Robin, lifted that, that oven into Gundaroo, into our garage and of course my partner Mary Beth thought it was a sign that she was meant to be a bread baker. So chef by trade but all of a sudden um, she decided to learn to make bread and a year later we opened Tin Shed Bread. <laughs> Not following the star but the, but the crane. <laughs> <laughs> it's arrived. <laughs> so in terms of work-life balance, it, it, you know, does it work for you? Because it seems like you know, baking bread's hard work. It is hard work but fortunately it's happening in our front yard which <laughs> means that Mary Beth is um, down there in her rug boots early Beautiful. in the morning. Um, she's you know, available to take our daughter to school locally and to pick her up again. Um, she does school lunch for the kids. There's no canteen because it's a small school once a week. And uh, Gundra is such a lovely community be, to be a part of. We feel really supported and welcomed. So that balance between, I guess, driving home, thinking about often some quite intense conversations um, that I've had at work, getting home and Mary Beth will say, oh, yeah, my rye was a bit sticky today or, you know... <laughs> Um, the mothers didn't quite rise in time. So we had this lovely balance between um, some really heavy stuff, but also the joy that you get, or that she gets from creating something, people eat it, they enjoy it, it's done for the day and you do it all again fresh the next day. And, and just, I think I'll just finally ask you, in this role as the ACT Victims of Crime Commissioner with the Human Rights Commission, if you want to leave us with a key kind of message about what your role really means and what you would like people to understand, what what would you say? Mm. I think for all of the Human Rights Commission and certainly uh, the team that I head up at Victim Support ACT, we would particularly like the LGBTIQ communities and people living with HIV to know that we are a safe and confidential place to come. We work with a lot of people um, when they're deciding what they want to do, whether they're talking about something that happened the day before or, for example, something that happened decades ago but they're at a point in their lives when they're ready to talk about it and get some help. If people have experienced harassment, if they've experienced psychological or physical or economic abuse, if they're just deciding whether or not to talk to someone, deciding whether to report to police, if they've had a bad experience with police or the criminal justice system, 
there are a lot of things that we can offer you to choose from that might uh, in some way aid your recovery or it may be that we can gather the information that you need from uh, from police, from prosecutors, uh, from corrections that might help you to make good decisions about your own safety. Um, so we are able to offer people things like free counselling, including through the counsellors at Westland Counselling here at the AIDS Action Council. Um, we also run the Victims of Crime Financial Assistance Scheme, which in some cases where someone's experienced a violent offence and has an injury and needs, for example, um, immediate help relocating or changing the locks or getting emergency dental treatment, we can help with some of those things. And the other thing we can do is provide court support. So if people are at court not necessarily giving evidence in the criminal matter, they might be seeking a protection order, they might be in the ACT Civil and Administrative Tribunal about debt that was linked to an experience of crime which meant they didn't pay their bills for a time or their rent, we can provide court support and assistance in accessing legal advice um, at that point in time as well. We also have an Aboriginal liaison officer who does a lot of outreach work across community. We recognise that an agency like ours isn't always the easiest place to cold call. So we're also really keen to know, for people to know that we can come out and see them. We can come and see them somewhere like um, the AIDS Action Council here. We can meet them at a local library. We can see them at a health centre. Um, we want to know how it is that we can support people where they're at and how we can make the government-funded services that we're responsible for work for people in terms of practical help to improve their safety or help them to recover from, like I said, crime that might have been very recent or, or might have been decades ago. Yeah. It's you're just working in, I think it's Hugh McKay, the writer, who's actually come to live here in Canberra with us, who wrote that fantastic book that says really fundamental human desire is to be taken seriously, to yeah. be listened to. That's mm. exactly what you're doing and when it comes to crime. You're there to help. Well, so many victims feel like the criminal justice system mm. doesn't ever give them a voice. Mm. You know, they feel like cannon fodder giving evidence in a proceeding that is primarily about the offender, not uh, not about them. And uh, part of my role as commissioner is to make sure that the criminal justice process is responsive to the needs of victims. I also um, have really broad uh, information gathering powers if someone doesn't feel like they are being heard by police or by the prosecution or if corrections aren't giving them up-to-date information about when an offender might be released or applying um, for bail or parole. So uh, we want to be here if people have got questions to find the information that might assist them or where they've had a really rubbish experience to feed that into the big picture change that might mean that the next person in that situation I guess isn't uh, doesn't have such a rough trot I mean, from working with lots of victims and their families in the ACT, I'm well aware that no two stories are the same and crime impacts people in such a broad range of ways. They can be all right for a while and then not be okay for a really long time or the other way around. So what I want to make sure as Commissioner is that we've got the best possible range of options for people and that we support them to choose the things that they want for their lives. Heidi Yates, thank you. Thanks, Alex. For more information, visit our website at aidsaction.org.au. Follow us on Facebook or become an AIDS Action Council member. You know you want to. LGBTIQ health, lifestyle and community news. Check it out. It's brought to you by the AIDS Action Council. From Canberra. For everyone.